You're listening to episode 39 of Chirps, a St. Louis Cardinals podcast for birds in the black. I'm Tara, he's Alex, and the trade deadline has come and gone. So now what? Hey, everybody. Thanks for checking out another episode of the show. Tara and Alex with you. The Cardinals are at 58 and 53 on the season as we are actually recording ahead of the second game of the series in L.A. These late West Coast games are giving us a chance to record before the game actually happens. So hopefully nothing too uh, time sensitive happens between now and the time you actually hear this. But we're not really going to talk a whole lot about the game itself, because while the Cardinals are two and a half games behind the Cubs, a game and a half ahead of the Brewers and half a game out of a wild card spot, things are a little more well, complicated, as has become the buzzword for this season, than even that. Now, you may have noticed there was not a new show last week. Alex was away, and I was sort of trying to wait till after the deadline to, you know, talk about whatever exciting things did, or as it turns out, did not happen, because anything would have been old news by the time you heard it on Wednesday morning. And then... Alex, first of all, welcome back, but I, I guess I should have just done the show because the Cardinals didn't do anything of note anyway. Well, uh, I'm not sure that's entirely true. They traded Jed Jerko. Right. Right. Um, right. What else did they do? Then they proceeded to lose to Kyle Hendricks, right? Mm-hmm. The, the very next day, uh, as they're wont to do. I, he, uh, he has dominated the Cardinals <laughs> in at least his most recent starts. Uh, I still remember when he took that no-hitter against the Cardinals. I, I think it was the end of the 2016 season. Or it might be 2017. Um, into the Cardinals, uh, into the ninth, and then Jeremy Hazelbaker broke it up. Uh, with Gotta love run. that Jeremy Hazelbaker yeah, throwback. So, so, so whatever year that Hazelbaker year was, uh, <laughs> that's when that happened. And that was like the only good thing that happened that year, if I, if I recall, was yeah. Jeremy Hazelbaker <laughs> breaking up like <laughs> Kyle Hendricks no hitter because that would have just been too much to bear I think uh, especially because that was at Bush Stadium and you know we had already suffered through uh, too many indignities up to that point that Hazel Baker uh, luckily saved us all but yeah I don't even know what to say anymore it seemed uh, like this was the deadline where you make the move and they didn't make the move um you know, looking at it through a vacuum, it looks really bad. It's a little different when you add in all the actual pieces that were still available. But, and, and Craig Edwards made a point of this today at Fangraphs. He talked about how, you know, the last couple of seasons, a move probably could have been made as well. But at least then, they weren't necessarily in a position to grab the division. Or at least um, in as good a position to grab the division. Especially in 2016, they were, you know, Cubs had already left them in their dust or whatnot. But in this case, the Cardinals were in first place at the time. Yeah. And it seemed within grasp that this division is winnable. And the biggest weakness of this team is obvious to everyone. And what's frustrating is it's been obvious to everyone the entire season. And there were readily available fixes available also for almost the entire season. And... It's crazy to me that we are going to go into August and September with Waka and Hudson as, a, as our four and five. You know, we saw what happened with Waka last night. You could like hear the hard contact coming off the screen. Yeah. 
I, I was like almost doing other things and you could just hear the, like, I felt like fireworks were going off on my, on my TV or something. And I hate saying things like that because I love Michael Waka. Um, so I always, you know, you never wanted, I never wanted to disparage Michael Waka, but he shouldn't be out there. And then we're talking about Dakota Hudson, who has already pitched more innings this season than he ever has in any season of pro ball. And so I just don't know what we're going to get from him in August and September. Uh, we've never seen him go through a, a long season like this before. So they, as, as Craig Edwards note, note, uh, noted at Fangraphs, they kind of dug themselves in this corner um, over the last couple of years and it's going to be tough to get out of. And if they, if this breaks bad, which it, which it might, then the heat that Mosaic and company are going to get this off season is going to be huge. Yeah. It's one of the biggest risks I've ever seen in terms of not doing anything, if that makes sense. It does. And it does because we often talk about this front office being pretty risk averse and not wanting to make the big move because of the risk that it could be. I don't know that I've heard them in so many words say the risk was too big. And they basically did <laughs> as they came out in defense of or, or even just explanation of their choices to not sort of force a move or take the ones that were available as it pertains to possibly a Zach Wheeler trade. But they basically said, we didn't know how it was going to work out. So we decided not to do it. And as much as that's averting risk on one end of the spectrum, it's such a huge risk on the other side, because that means you're willing to take your chances with a clearly compromised Michael Waka with a Ponce de Leon that has been a disaster in his last couple of starts without the likes of Alex Reyes and Austin Gomber, who are either injured or not pitching for whatever reasons, whatever's going on with Alex Reyes, it's a bit mysterious at this point, as is the injury for Austin Gomber. But I mean, those are the guys that were sort of your backups to this precarious starting rotation from the beginning. And now you don't even have the backups to those starters that you planned to go through the season with. So it's a huge risk. And I would just point out a couple of things as I've been watching how people are responding to this. There's an extreme that seems like you know, people who don't want the team to just make a move for the sake of making a move assume about anyone who's frustrated or, or concerned about the fact that they didn't make a move. That's not what, speaking for myself, that's not what I wanted them to do. But when there were obvious answers that, yes, may have cost them something, whether it be Tyler O'Neill or Harrison Bader and other lower level prospects, those are the things that you, those are the hard choices you have to make in this job. That's, that's how good teams get better and prepare themselves for the postseason. And we sort of talked about this at one point, And I was just thinking about it earlier today to circle back to is this idea that was it going to be a bigger problem, even just for the fan base? for the Cardinals to not make a move or for the Cardinals to make a move so that they made a move. I don't know if we still have a clear answer to that. All I know is that it's a big problem that they didn't make a move. Yeah. I, I think the fan base would be more forgiving if they made a move. Look, look, no one wants them to make a move for the sake of they can say, yes, we made a trade 
at the deadline. Like, that's ridiculous. No one in good faith wants that. But I do think fans are more forgiving of an instance in which a team actually takes a chance and it doesn't work out versus them not taking a chance. And by doing that, it doesn't work out. I'll give an example of, and I've talked about this before, but when the Cubs traded for Quintana and gave up uh, Eloy Jimenez, let's say... Quintana was a disaster from the start with the Cubs, and he he absolutely has not been. Um, he hasn't been, you know, I, I'm not positive if he's been the the pitcher they were hoping to get, but he's been good. He certainly hasn't been a disaster, but let's say he had been a disaster. You could still see why that trade was made. Yeah. And it's because, you know, they have a window. He's an established starting pitcher a good established starting pitcher. And that's what you do. You trade prospects for established players. So even if that had broken bad, and again, it hasn't, I think we all would have understood the process there. And I think the Cardinals would have gotten the same, I I guess, benefit of the doubt. Uh, And, you know, I don't want to speak too much on this because without giving an example of the trade that they actually should have made. But but I do think we would have given them the benefit of the doubt if if they at least showed... Like a sign that, look, we recognize the importance here. We talked about that 2019 being an important season. And, and this is why we're, you know, and, and we're acting on that. We're, we're, we're doing what we can to improve this team down the stretch because winning the division is absolutely possible. And I'm, I'm curious, do you th- did we ever find out if that Wheeler for Bader trade, if, if that was an actual thing? M- meaning... It was... The, what do we that know was that? the basis of the trade, but it would have been a package deal centered on though either Tyler O'Neill or Harrison Bader, which okay. to me implies that it was one of those major league ready players and other lower level prospects, right? I mean, if right. Dylan Carlson or Nolan Gorman were part of that deal, no. it wouldn't right. have centered on Harrison Bader exactly. or Tyler okay. O'Neill. So that's certainly speaking for myself, and I'm not just saying this because uh well, maybe I'm partly saying this because Harrison Bader hasn't had a great year. But speaking for myself, that's a deal you make. Yeah. I really think that is a deal you make. And everyone talks about like, well, you know, it's going to be eight. How many starts from, from Wheeler from here on out? Eight starts, and nine starts? Ten or 11 is what Mo keeps, the number he keeps going back to. I haven't actually yeah. counted it up. But. You know, and, and those are the type of starts that could be the difference when making the playoffs. Yeah. Those are the type of starts that that could be the difference of getting people actually wanting to go to the games um, because they're going to see a winning team and they're going to see playoff baseball instead of going to the games because it's a bobblehead or because it's Star Wars night or whatever. Or because well, it was $10 tickets against the Cubs, which is insane to me, but nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, we talked about when Pujols was in town, just the buzz at the stadium yeah. that hadn't been there in a while. And, and you know, they always get good crowds. I'm not going to act like they have problems attendance wise, but I don't feel like the buzz has been there. Like it has in years past. We've seen more empty seats than we have in years past. So I'm shocked if that is the case, if that trade was on the table, that they wouldn't pull the trigger with, with that deal. And and I like Harrison Bader, but it's a classic case of dealing from a position of strength to acquire a position of need. And again, I go back to, we all know the starting pitching is a problem. And one of the things with starting pitching being a problem is the rest of the team isn't quite good enough to overcome that. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's just frustrating. Uh, And just, 
I don't know. I don't know if I want to say the word arrogance, but for them to say, she'll to say like, you know, look, Waka had good stuff last night, you know, or what was the quote? It was the best stuff he's had in a while. Yeah, yeah, um, something to that effect. And, and I, I just kind of stopped reading Mosaic's quotes. Um, <laughs> not because I have a problem with Mosaic, just because they're always so pointless. And just yeah. so... He doesn't ever say anything. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's my strategy. Uh, and maybe what she said last night about Waka is just classic coach speak that you say so you're not bearing your guy um, to the media. But the problem is, it's not like it was 20 years ago where fans are are completely in the dark. You know, we're not as much yeah. in the dark. Well, like, especially a fan base like the Cardinals, rabid fan base, like a lot of teams, they understand how this stuff works. They, you know, we're not idiots. And so, like, I, I don't think it's too much to ask for them not to – you know, don't we? We're not asking you to bury your players when it's even if it's warranted, but we're also asking not to just treat us like we're stupid either because we're not. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that any coach or manager is going to find a way to prop up their guys in some respect. But I also think you can say, yeah, it was a it was a struggle out there. He was really, you know, as much as we all hate it, he was really grinding through some of those at bats. Whatever it is, you can find a way to say that without basically saying something that isn't accurate. I mean, if his stuff was as good as they tried to make it sound like it was, he would have missed more bats and he didn't. So the fact that he only gave up runs in a couple of the innings that he pitched, he still threw like 96 pitches in three and a third or or three and two thirds or whatever it was. So his stuff wasn't that good. (laughs) Let's be (laughs) clear about what he was throwing last night. A lot of it was in the middle of the plate (laughs) or not in the strike zone at all. So that's, it just seems very disingenuous to say something like, oh yeah, his stuff looked really good. Well, that's great. But if he's not using it effectively, the stuff being good doesn't matter. He was pitching to, I I already forgot his name. Who pitched for the Dodgers last night? Do you remember who that guy, what his name was? Uh, Rookie. I can't remember what his last name was. Yeah, I I can't either. Um, which tells you a lot. <laughs> he, of course, <laughs> shut us down, which yeah, exactly. we all expected. But Waka was throwing him pitches that I was watching. I was like, I think I might be able to hit that. Yeah. Uh, and now it's the pitcher. So you're not, you're not, you're trying to get the ball across the play. Let him, you know, if he can even get the bat on the ball, then we're not expecting much. And we have good defense behind him. So you can afford to do that right there. But yeah, he just looked terrible. Uh, that first inning went exactly as we were all expecting and we're all talking about leading into that game. And the other thing I'll ask is what did we see from him in relief or what do you think the team saw from him in relief that said, he's definitely a better option right now than fill in the blank from Memphis. We talked about Wheeler. I'd even go since we just played Oakland, you know, we don't have to be in on Syndergaard. We don't have to be in on, you know, Zach Greenkey or whatever, but like even like Tanner Roark, Mm-hmm. You know, someone who's going to at least give you more reliable innings down the stretch that that obviously was available. Um, now, I, I don't know how to compare what Oakland gave up to what we would have had to give up. So, so maybe it wouldn't have been worth it for a pitcher like Tanner Roark. But a pitcher like Tanner Roark and Gio Gonzalez was available all offseason. You know, not all offseason, yeah. like during this. You know, they could have signed him earlier for just money. You know, Craig, that's another thing Craig Edwards mentioned in that Fangrass article. Did you read that, by the way? That was an excellent I did. article. I that, did. That analogy he ended with about the Cardinals 
running out of gas, even though they have um, all the gas money in the world, but they just felt like, uh, you know, they just kept passing all the gas stations because they thought it was just a little too expensive for what they wanted, you know, and then, yeah. then by then it's too late. Uh, that was a great analogy. And that was a great article. Everyone should read that. I don't remember where I was going with this, but just that I'm surprised that they brought Waka back. Like, why did we move him out in the first place? Um, it's because he hasn't been good. From my eyes, I didn't see anything in the bullpen that said, okay, we, it's time to bring this guy back. He's absolutely better than our, our other options because I, I just don't think he is. So here's my thought on Michael Waka. First of all, I don't know what they saw that was convincing enough to pull him out of the bullpen and put him back into the rotation, except that I kind of feel like they're running out of other options. I mean, yeah. Ponce de Leon was not good in his the last two starts before they moved him out of the rotation. And like I mentioned, you don't have Austin Gomber. You don't have Alex Reyes. You don't have Carlos Martinez because he's locked into the closer role at this point. And what you have at Memphis is fine. Woodford would be an option. But then all of a sudden we start getting into this 40-man crunch and – well, we've all seen how, again, complicated that can get, although they do have a couple of spots open. They did before today. They are bringing up Junior Fernandez, who will be pitching out of the bullpen. There is one spot remaining, though, because one of the moves that they did make ahead of the deadline to trade for or pick up, rather, Mejia, well, he's already been <laughs> DFA'd after, I think, two performances. So... That's uh, that. That's the extent of production they've gotten from the moves they've made at the deadline. And I want to go back to something that you said while we're still talking about this Michael Walker thing because it's a little bit mind-boggling to me the the arguments that have still been made in the last couple of days about the fact that the pitching isn't the problem. <laughs> it seems incredibly obvious to me. Obviously we've been talking about it since like December that this rotation had the potential to be very problematic. And that has seemed to be where even when you get a good turn through the rotation, it all comes back to inconsistency in the starting rotation. I'm not sure it's quite as obvious to everyone as it seems to be to me and to you in this conversation, but maybe let's sort of turn this from how bad the deadline was for a variety of reasons to what the Cardinals do now, because if they're going to roll with Michael Waka, I mean, they have a rotation that is an inconsistent miles, Michaelis, a Jack Flaherty that appears to be returning to form, but time will tell Adam Wainwright, who's really been quite, good at home and really not been quite good on the road and a Dakota Hudson that looks like he's just running out of steam. That's why Michael Walker in the rotation is such a problem because there are issues that are more than just Michael Walker. And I don't know how you resolve that at this point. Yes. Uh, their playoff odds, according to fan graphs have uh, slipped to about 40%. And um, the Cubs in the meantime, theirs have, have gone in the opposite direction, um, meaning since the deadline. Now, I will say there is some good news, uh, and that's once we leave L.A., we have 16 games uh, home against Pittsburgh, uh, two at Kansas City, um, then we go to Cincinnati, and then we have Milwaukee coming to Bush, and then the Rockies coming to Bush. So that's 16 games against teams that don't really scare me all that much, including 
the Brewers, uh, at least when they're coming to Bush Stadium. Uh, now, four games at Cincinnati. Uh, Cincinnati's uh, certainly a formidable team. Uh, that's a ballpark that's always unpredictable. But I feel good about those about those 16 games. And we really don't, even after that, we go to Milwaukee, then we have more games with the Reds, uh, home against the Giants, you go to Pittsburgh. We have a lot of winnable games on the schedule. To me, it's not really until we go to Wrigley in what's basically the last two weeks of the season uh, when we have a four-game homestand at Wrigley from September 19th to 22nd, which I'm already sort of dreading, by the way. <laughs> I'm, I'm worried it's going to be a situation where we're going to be like up one, you know, which would be great if, if somehow we could uh, crawl back from the doldrums of being two and a half back or who knows what will be tomorrow morning and somehow be a game up on the Cubs. But yeah, I worry we're going to be a game up on the Cubs and then just go to Wrigley and, you know, we all know what has happened there. Uh, And and we're not the only ones. Mm -hmm. The Cubs have played really, really well at at home. Their problem is that I I believe they are the worst team in the National League on the road, or at least they were uh, a couple of days ago. And I don't think they've been on the road for a couple of days, so they probably still are. So... You know, we're going to be done with the Dodgers soon, I guess, I guess is my point. We don't, have any, we don't have the Braves, you know, on the schedule or anything like that. We have, we have winnable games that if they want to stay in the thick of the wild card or in the thick of the division even, and they can somehow get passable pitching from the fourth and fifth spot, then I think they can stay in this. But, yeah, they have to get passable pitching from the fourth and fifth spot. How worried are you in that case about the bullpen? Because we've seen John Gant, not surprisingly, sort of run out of steam. We've seen John Brebbia, when he gets overused, not have the same success rate. Giovanna Gallegos is going to be in that same boat eventually. And we've all seen that Carlos Martinez can still be a little bit unpredictable at times. I mean, I know I'm leaving out some guys in that bullpen, but... It hasn't been great, (laughs) and it has shown some cracks primarily when they have to cover so many additional innings because of that fourth and fifth spot in the rotation. That is no small problem when you start looking at this either because regardless of opponent, they they still have innings that they have to cover with someone. And if you're not going to go out and add a starting pitcher, if you're not going to go out and add a reliever that you're not going to DFA three days later, I don't know how you cover those innings that you made such a big deal about needing help to cover leading into the deadline. And that's not to get away from the question I just asked you, but that's part of the problem I have with the deadline is that the front office made such an emphasis put such an emphasis on, hey, the Cardinals went on this great stretch after the All-Star break. They showed us that they're a team that we can buy into, and then they just didn't. And this is why. This is why that's a problem, because there someone has to cover those innings, and if it's not going to be Dakota Hudson and it's not going to be Michael Waka, the bullpen's going to get burned sooner rather than later, regardless of what the opponent looks like or where you're playing. Yes. So the stars of the bullpen this year have been who? Like Brebbia, Gant, and Gallegos, right? In, in some order. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. They all three have pitched over 50 innings so far, uh, with yeah. Brebbia leading the way uh, close to 56. That's a lot, you know? So I, I, that's an that's a excellent question you raise. Like I talked about Hudson earlier. What are we 
what are we hoping to get from these guys in September? Are they going to be running on fumes? Um, I don't know. Uh, it's it, it's it's going to be tough. Like like I said earlier, they don't have the bullpen has been good this year, but it hasn't been. It's this is not like the 2000, I guess, 15 Royals. You, you know, where you just if you can just somehow yeah. claw your way to the fifth or sixth inning, then you know they're going to shut it down. Like you know, it's it's not that good. And especially yeah. with, like I said, uh, we we do have guys with with a high inning count. We have guys who have been shaky. From Andrew Miller, who's looked anywhere from you know all across the spectrum this year, he's been really good. He's been bad at times. Um, I I don't know. I I think that's our hope, though, right? That the that the bullpen doesn't implode. And this feels a lot like last season, doesn't it? Um, although, you know, when we went on that run in August and then September just felt like they were holding on for dear life um, with whatever they had left and it turned out they didn't have much. <laughs> um, it, mm-hmm. it kind of feels like that's what's happening this year, only earlier. You know, <laughs> we're only, we're not even through yeah. the first week in August yet. And maybe I'm just being pessimistic because they've lost, you know, what, what are they, one in three since the since they disappointed mm-hmm. us on the deadline or whatnot. So, so maybe I'm just reacting too negatively to four games i don't know but one thing i want to ask you about did you see i I forget if it was a tweet or an article but someone basically said that he's been around teams for a very long time and one thing he always notices is the extra like how teams perk up when they get help at the deadline how they like basically say like all right like you know the front office is with us let's go like you know now we have like the reinforcements are here and, you know, let's, uh, let's go, let's take these last two months with a, with a full head of steam or whatever. W- when I read that, which was, it seemed like at the time, like 10 minutes right after I realized the Cardinals weren't going to do anything, <laughs> I was just like, oh, it was like such a, such a blow. And, and I, I could see why that would be a thing too. Like I'm trying to put my head in, you know, to, trying to pretend like I'm a player, like how I would feel in that situation. Like, do you think that's a real thing? Did you read that? I did. I did. And I absolutely think it's a real thing. I think a, a couple of things. First of all, I <laughs> tweeted ahead of the, the Cubs series that that had the potential to be the biggest three-day swing in the entire season because it was a series with the Chicago Cubs. They entered that series tied for the top spot in the division and the trade deadline was in the middle of that series. So they could have had these reinforcements, like you mentioned, that would give them that extra boost as they go into the last couple of months of the season, or it could flip the script entirely. They could have gotten swept out of that series, not make a move at the deadline and basically be dead in the water at the end of that, that three days. So it, I realized that's those are the two very dramatic ends of the spectrum. And I had a number of people who basically were telling me that I was being overly dramatic. The point was that three days felt very significant because of the baseball that was being played on the field and the work that could have been done by the front office to vault them forward into the last two months. The second thing is I heard Adam Wainwright a while back. I mean, uh, maybe three weeks ago. And I don't even remember who the player was that he was talking about, but I heard him say something it was something to the effect of, yeah, that'd be great to get that guy on our team. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's what this mentality is that we're trying to sort of pinpoint, right? It's the idea that, wow, if we can get someone that we know is incredibly talented and can actually make us even better, especially when you're sitting at the top of the division anyway, yeah, that's a, a boost to the morale, if nothing else. And it's a weird situation because obviously it's a trade, right? That means someone is going out in order to bring someone else in. But if that someone else is making you better, all those guys are there to win. All of those guys are there to try to get to the postseason, to try to get to a World Series title. So yes, I think there's something very real to that. And I think it's an interesting predicament then to be in. And one of the things that I think is is the most problematic for the front office right now is the dramatic pivot that they made from we really feel like we have something here. The stretch from the trade or the the all-star break to the deadline really showed us something. We're going to go out and try to fill some of these holes that are obvious needs then to immediately pivot to, well, we tried really hard, but we actually believe in these guys anyway. It's so bizarre and such a, like the mental gymnastics you have to do to make that make sense (laughs) and to not be kind of a slap in the face is just very weird to me. It can have, to me, it feels like it could have the complete opposite effect of an addition that makes you better, that pushes you into the last two months. It can kind of suck the air out of the room. And not that these guys didn't believe in themselves to begin with, but they also now know that there are not reinforcements coming and they're it especially with the finality of the July 31st trade deadline. I mean, the only thing that they could do is basically pick up the scraps that somebody else couldn't find a spot for on their team anymore. And that's not particularly inspiring either. <laughs> it's, it's definitely not inspiring. Uh, the, the way you just phrased that of there are not reinforcements coming and we are it. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) Um, (laughs) which is great if you feel like you have all that you need, but it's obvious that they don't, right? It's Uh, obvious that the rotation is a problem. No, I'm just sitting here daydreaming about like uh, Larry Walker in 04 and Matt Holiday in 2009, (laughs) and not that those guys were available. uh, Those that caliber of players were available this this year, Um, but you remember when they picked those guys up. Right. It helped that they both did very well immediately, especially Holiday. Holiday just like went on a tear after having yeah. a uh, very poor season in Oakland. But the bigger point is the message it sent, which is we're going for it. Yep. You know, um, and, and that's huge for the fans. And you can see why that would also be like big for the players. Basically, them saying, "Okay, look, they're expecting us to win this, so so let's go win it." I do wonder if. Part of the reason why these deals just aren't being done is one, the Cardinals just maybe aren't that good at making these deals anymore. Um, But two, just like they're just not happening in baseball because GMs or whoever, uh, owners across the board are so risk averse because of how much value now in almost a gross way goes into those young guys with the cost control years in terms of like, Ever since we started measuring like wins above replacement versus dollar, you know what I mean? Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And back in the day, whether it's like, oh, GMs, you know, 15 years ago when the Larry Walker trade went down, just aren't as smart as they are today, at least across the board. Um, but it sure seems like that they're just way too fixated on these young guys who can, you know, well, 
uh, why would I pay this much for uh, a 30 year old uh, uh, superstar when I can get three fourths of that value for, you know, a 10th of the price, you know, it's just like all these yeah. almost gross calculations that I feel are really stunting um, baseball and certainly maybe even the Cardinals in, in terms of making these sort of moves. Like the Cardinals got a lot of mileage out of 2013, especially when they beat the Dodgers, when it was like people comparing the two payrolls and like all of a sudden the Cardinals became like this, the masters at homegrown talent and, you know, development and winning with your own guys who were way cheaper than having to sign a Zach Grinky or uh, Adrian Gonzalez or whoever else was on that Dodgers team, you know? Remember that awful cartoon where like the the Cardinal was holding the World Series trophy and the Dodger, the guy in the Dodger hat who's kind of dressed like the Monopoly man or something. Uh-huh. And like the Cardinal's like, <laughs> not for sale or something like that. I mean, at the time I got what they were doing and yeah, kind of like had a, I could see why some people like that sediment, but now it just looks really stupid in my opinion. I mean, it was stupid at the time, but it's really looks stupid now. Like, oh, yeah, I mean, you know what? Maybe paying for free agents, good free agents at that is actually sometimes a pretty good idea. There's a reason a year like that is shocking, right? Because it's the anomaly, not <laughs> because it's the norm. There's a reason. I mean, the Cardinals have not been able to replicate their runners in scoring position numbers from that. They haven't been able to replicate. Like, the reason these things stand out when you look at them in not just in the vacuum of the moment that they happen in is because they don't happen consistently is because they're it's it's a thing that you can't manufacture every time and I think you're right I think the Cardinals are in a a position where they feel like they're still trying to operate in a baseball environment where that's possible in a baseball environment (laughs) where it's probably not. I mean, you look at the teams that have won the last few years and they're pretty much the teams that went out and made a move to make themselves that much better to ensure that they made the postseason run they were, they were aiming for. And I don't know. I, um, a friend of mine who covers the diamondbacks actually asked me on Twitter today, if I thought that the Cardinals would revisit the starting pitcher trade conversations in the winter and then followed it up with, they can't be oblivious to the PR nightmare they're facing right now, can they? And I mean, I think the answer to that second question is no, they can't be oblivious to it. I'm just not sure that they care. And that seems like a problem because it's not, in my mind, it's not just a PR disaster. It is the inability to like function within the baseball culture as it exists now. And it's not just the Cardinals. You're right. It's a, a a baseball wide thing where GMs are all trying to be the smartest guy in the room and they would rather win a trade or rather not lose a trade than to, you know, take the risk that might win them the season. And that's a terrible place for baseball to be in right now. Yeah. I I guess if, one way that I will certainly forgive the Cardinals. Let's say things go very poorly. Um, Cardinals don't make the playoffs. They uh, win like 85 games or something. Um, remember, that? that's what I predicted them to win. Remember when we did that? Like how many? Yeah. Yes, I'm sticking with that 85. That still sounds pretty <laughs> good to me. But yeah, let's say they, they don't make the playoffs. I could see myself forgiving them for this past deadline if this offseason – they outbid everyone for like Garrett Cole 
Um, and because then yeah. they can say, hey, look, we all of a sudden have a pitcher who is uh, better than Wheeler, who, uh, who Wheeler's going to be a free agent also. So um, we're going to have him for a while. And we didn't have to give up anyone except money. I would say, hey, good job. G- good thinking. W- w- way to, you know, w- way to play two or three moves ahead. Here's the problem. They're not going to outbid. They're not going to outbid people for Garrett Cole, are they? I mean, it just doesn't seem no. like. Yeah, you know, no. I mean, a lot of people are going to be in on that guy. In the Carnival- and here's the thing: they wouldn't trade off the major league roster. They wouldn't trade their top prospects, based on the fact that Harrison Bader was at Memphis at the time. Apparently, they wouldn't trade their top AAA guys either. And they won't spend in free agency. How do you get better <laughs> if you won't do any of those things? <laughs> well, you can keep producing. But what <laughs> they're not, what they're going to do is they're going to keep having these guys like uh, Aledmus Diaz is a great example. Like, where did he come from? Oh my gosh, look at this guy. He is a, you know, he was basically on the garbage heap, and all of a sudden he's playing shortstop for the Cardinals, and he's doing a pretty good job. Like, bravo to the Cardinals! Yay, Cardinals! That looks cool until you realize that that as a whole is only going to win you eighty five. You know, it's only going to win. It's not going to win <laughs> you in the, the type, the amount of games you need to go to the playoffs or, or win the division. It's just going to, you know, have these nice little stories. Which, yeah, I enjoy it when Elias Diaz comes on and all of a sudden has a you know a nice little season because the Cardinals are pretty good at player development or um, Edmund. Or though he, you know, that has certainly sounded better about two or three weeks ago than. Than it has now because he hasn't been hitting all that well. Although I still, I've still enjoyed the Tommy Edmund experience for the most part. He's been done a pretty good job in the field. Um, but you know, all they have all these type of guys that they can. They've been able to plug in all these holes, and they get a lot of credit for it. Um, even though the fact that they're fine and good players, but they're not good enough players to move the needle enough to get the Cardinals to the win total they need to make the playoffs. Which is really yeah, all would we you, care about. Right. <laughs> Which and, is and it's not, not unreasonable. what they care about. <laughs> yeah, and it's not unreasonable, in my opinion, to, care, to have that be the main thing you care about when 10 teams per season play some sort of playoff baseball. We debated you know, right. a couple of weeks ago what it even means, that, that wild card game, but whatever. 10 teams get to at least say, we did this. We won a wild card. We won a division. And Yeah. Um, if this season comes and goes and Cardinals don't make it, I mean, how many teams are we looking at that will have made the playoffs since the Cardinals last did? Uh, it has <laughs> to be over 20. Yeah. I, I would think so. I, I wouldn't be shocked if it was, um, well, shoot, 20 might be high, but we'll, we'll figure That's this out. That's an interesting question. We'll, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll look at it. it. Yeah. <laughs> Circle it's back a to lot. that. It's, it's definitely yeah. more than half. I'll say that. And and you're right. It's not an unfair thing to expect as the goal. I think even I think even teams that are maybe more bubble teams than the Cardinals want to admit that they are hope for some crazy thing to happen and they make it to the postseason anyway, right? That's that's the goal for almost any team that isn't just in an outright rebuild mode. And the Cardinals don't want to be a team that's in an outright rebuild mode. So they have to find a way to make the postseason their goal. And it's one thing to say, you know, we're going to try to win 85 games and see what happens, but that's not how baseball works anymore. That's not how they're going to win this division. And granted the division hasn't been as 
good, I think, as we expected. It's been competitive because it hasn't been as good as we expected. So perhaps those win totals don't have to be as astronomically high as we thought. But I think the the conclusion here is that, man, the, they, they've painted themselves into a corner as far as talking up this season. And then on a dime, turned their focus to 2020, 2022. And that's fine and good in its own right, but it's a tough pill to swallow to to hear them make that change so immediately after watching the Cardinals go on a run that put them at the top of the division in a division that's maybe not going to be as hard to win as we thought it was going to be. So yeah, it's a weird situation that they've put themselves in. And are there ways that they could resolve that, whether it's in the offseason going after Garrett Cole or, you know, something, whatever else? Yes. But they've also kind of created a box for themselves where they don't spend money in free agency, not enough to outbid the highest bidder. And they don't make trades that they don't feel like they're going to win or that aren't, you know, sending the problem child off to be someone else's problem. But that's a whole nother show. Um I guess my last question on this, to sort of turn it a touch less pessimistic, is if the Cardinals can figure out how to make it to the postseason, if they can either overtake the Cubs or hold on to a wild card spot, how does it happen? Because I don't have any confidence that it's going to be writing Michael Waka as the fifth starter. But like I said earlier, I don't know that they have a ton of other options. So sort of just in, you know, imagination land for a moment, if they were able to pull it off, who is it going to take stepping up or or what's it going to be that gives them enough to hold on to one of those spots? I think the offense sort of a weird question. I know, but no, no, I I think if I'm understanding your question correctly, I think, Oh, wow. We just had a lot of thunder here. Uh, I think the offense is going to have to shoulder the load. Uh, I'm I'm looking back to that, you know, when they won what they, they won nine at nine out of 10 games, 10 out of 11 games where they had two games within a couple days of one another where they scored 10 runs (laughs) in an inning, you know, Um, they're going to have to score six, seven runs in a lot of games. And, and that's not impossible. That's not unheard of. But it does seem like when the offense does that, it's more of a flash in the pan than the identity of this offense. Mm-hmm. If Paul Goldschmidt can, uh, you know, I was out of town for a couple of days. And I think while I was out of town, he kind of cooled down. But that stretch yeah. he had where he, what, his six home runs in seven games or seven home runs in eight games, actually, mm-hmm. I think it was. Uh, if, if he can put the team on their back, for for a solid you know three four weeks and you know other players can step up like we've seen them do uh like like we know they can paul DeYoung, young uh jose martinez other guys who can hit well if we can i, I don't want to make a big two deal too big a deal out of the lineup but maybe figure out who that leadoff guy should be um because we haven't figured that out all year i i think i looked a couple of days ago and they have the second worst on base percentage in baseball from the leadoff position yeah. this year uh, next to the Cubs actually. Uh, and, and speaking of the Cubs, it's going to take the Cubs breaking down, which has mm-hmm. happened a little bit. They have some bullpen trouble right now. Uh, Kimbrell's on the shelf. Um, uh, several other guys, I, I believe just went through the IL. So 
it's going to take if the Cubs play well from here on out. It's, I just don't see it happening. It's going to have to be a combination of the Cardinals' offense covering up some warts and the Cubs being the inconsistent team they've been for the most for most of the season. Yeah, agree. Yeah, and I do agree completely. And I think with getting Marcelo Zuna back, Matt Carpenter being back, Yadier Molina coming back shortly. We'll see what happens with Harrison Bader. Obviously, there is going to be some fluidity to who's in that lineup or how often they play. All of those things have to be pretty heavy on the shoulders of Mike Schilt right now because he's got to find a way to pull some strings and the players have to be able to execute. And you're right. I think the only way this team makes the postseason is if the offense does something that they haven't done all year in the consistency of the runs they're able to produce. We've seen them do it in bunches, just not consistently. And that is what's going to haunt them if the starting pitching in particular remains so ineffective that then the bullpen, you know, is having to take on two plus extra innings a night as well. So um, no pressure, Paul Goldschmidt, but uh, this is what they brought you here for. So now would be a good time to uh, to step into the hero role. But that's, I mean, we could talk this to death. I mean, there are so many ways that you can break down this trade deadline and what the team is or is not doing that's incredibly frustrating. But I think that's all I have to say on it for now. And we'll we'll see what happens as they finish out this series in LA and then take on an easier part of the schedule. Alex, I, I don't even know what to expect anymore. That's That's where I've landed after all of this. That's a good place to be. I don't think anyone knows what to expect. So, <laughs> Well, I do know that you have a chirp of the week for us, and uh, let's, uh, let's go right into that then. Okay. Uh, in the spirit of us being a couple of grumps and just complaining about the Cardinals, <laughs> I thought I would uh, uh, stay, <laughs> stay there and uh, look all yeah, the way in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why, why try to like, bring in all this sunshine and stuff now? Um, so I wanted to look at players who have done very well against the Cardinals uh, throughout history. Uh, I, so I looked at both hitters and pitchers. And I just kind of looked at mostly traditional stats, kind of like the batting average, stuff like that, but also kind of like the more the compiled stats, like hits, runs, RBIs. Um, so I'm just going to go down the list on all these different stats and tell you who is in first against the Cardinals. Uh, so batting average with a minimum of 100 plate appearances. This surprised me because I don't have any memories of this guy haunting the Cardinals, um, but I'm, it's, it's been recent enough that I'm sure a lot of people do and people are going to think I'm crazy for not remembering this. But Jim Tomei hit 430 against the Cardinals. Hmm. Do you, do, you re- okay. do, do you remember him just destroying us? No. Okay, because it's I mean, about- maybe, maybe the, they're, wasn't a ton of exposure. <laughs> I mean, it, it was, and that's why I don't remember. Yeah, but, it was only like 116 yeah. plate appearance. You know, it wasn't a ton. Right. So it could have been spread out a lot. And I'll tell you exactly how many plate appearances it was. I have it right here. It was 131. So it's, it wasn't like okay. he, you know, 500 plate appearances. But still, he right. batted 430 against us yeah. in 131 plate appearances, and that's better than anyone. Uh, on base percentage, again, Jim Tomey, 565. Huh. Uh, so you're wow. thinking, okay, so he got some hits um, and he got on base a lot, but he surely can't be uh, 
the leader in slugging as well. Well, he actually also is a leader in slugging because he got all those hits. And you know, Jim told me he wasn't just hitting singles. He was hitting home runs. Mm. Um, he slugged 1,010 against <laughs> So he had like a basically a 1,600 OPS against the Cardinals. Uh, yeah, Jim Tomei used to haunt us. I, I don't even remember it. Um, so let's move on to some kind of the more uh, compiled stats. Uh, hits, Paul Wehner with 435. Uh, doubles, also Paul Wehner with 99. Triples, Jack Dalbert with 30. Now, you got to remember, a lot of these for these stats are going to be kind of the older players because they have fewer teams in, so they play the Cardinals uh, more often uh, during a season. So it's not a surprise some of these are more are the more old-timer guys. Uh, Tara, do you want to take a stab at who has the most home runs against the Cardinals? It's pretty... I'll just let you tell me. Hank Aaron. Okay. 91. Right. He hit nine, Hank Aaron hit 91 home <laughs> runs against the Cardinals. Uh, RBIs, also Hank Aaron with 290. Run scored, Max Carey with 249. That's one more than Hank Aaron, who had 248 against the Cardinals. Plate appearances, Mel Ott. He had 1,658 plate appearances against the Cardinals, which makes sense. He spent all those years um, in the National League with the New York Giants. Uh, most stolen bases ever against the Cardinals, Max Carey with 120. Um, most hit by pitches, uh, meaning this is the guy the Cardinals hit the most. Uh, number one is Art Fletcher with 28. Uh, Craig Biggio, um, and this makes a lot of sense, is second with 27. Uh, and I saw Anthony Rizzo, at, uh, which should not surprise too many people, was climbing the list with, I believe he had 19. Uh, so those are the hitters who have uh, dominated the Cardinals, uh, mostly Jim Tomey and Paul Wehner. Uh, but we will also going to move on to the pitching now. Um, so I looked at for kind of the non-compiled stats, I looked at pitchers with a minimum of 100 innings pitched against the Cardinals. And I don't know if how crazy the dead ball era was or if the baseball references play index, which is where I got all this information from. It's an awesome source. Everyone should, should subscribe to the play index. But I don't know if it wasn't doing this accurately, but two pitchers who have pitched over 100 innings against the Cardinals have a zero ERA against them. <laughs> they are Bob Ewing and Al Matter. They played back way back in the dead ball era. Um, so if you haven't heard those names, um, don't feel bad. But yes, they, I don't know how, what the scorekeepers were like then, but they have a zero ERA against the Cardinals. <laughs> whip, you know, we don't talk about whip all that much anymore, but I like whip um, for, again, minimum of 100 innings pitch. Ted Lilly, so a bit more of a contemporary answer. He had a 0.943 whip um, against the Cardinals. Uh, win percentage, Ed Roebuck, uh, again, a minimum of 100 innings pitched. He had a 900 winning percentage against the Cardinals. Uh, <laughs> uh, I know we don't care about, you know, wins, but, you know, this is still a fun thing to look at. <laughs> and I think that was in exactly 10 decisions. I think he had nine wins and one mm. loss. Uh, strikeout to walk ratio is Zach Grinke. Uh, 4.67 strikeouts for every walk against the Cardinals in a minimum of 100 innings pitched. Um, That, if you want to know the exact stats, he has 112 strikeouts against the Cardinals against only 24 walks. Uh, The most innings pitched against the Cardinals is Warren Spahn with 919. The most wins against the Cardinals is, again, Warren Spahn with 64, uh, probably most of this time when he was with the Milwaukee Braves, I bet. Strikeouts. Again, Warren Spahn with 376. 
Uh, second place on this list is uh, former Cardinal Steve Carlton with 345. <laughs> uh, you may have heard this before, Tara, but trading Steve Carlton for what was basically a bag of donuts was probably not the best idea in the world. I don't know where I got bag of donuts from. Is that an expression? I don't think it is. I don't know, but <laughs> it is now. <laughs> All right. Um, sh- sh- shutouts. Uh, Pete Alexander, who spent some time with the Cardinals, uh, way back in the day had 13 shutouts against the Cardinals. And very last stat, it's going to be uh, a bit more of a contemporary guy because it saves and saves is a newer stat. Um, that's John Franco. He shut down the Cardinals to win the game more than anyone. He had 35 saves against the Cardinals. You know, he spent his whole career in the National League, mostly with the Reds and Mets. So it's no surprise, I guess, that he is at the top of the list. Um, and yes, those are the guys that um, do well against the Cardinals. Uh, thankfully... If I recall, let me. I'm going to check my list again. Yes, all but one of them, and that one person is Zach Greinke. All but one of everyone I just mentioned is now either retired or dead. Uh, and Zach Greinke is, uh, let's see, he's carefully quarantined now in the American League, so hopefully we don't have to deal with him for a very long time. And uh, that is your Chirp of the Week, a bunch of people who used to torture the Cardinals. Do you have any memory of go. anyone who used to um, – either come up to the plate or pitching, I guess, uh, Hendricks right now, right? Like you just never, yeah. want, you never want to see him on the mound. He just seems to own us. Um, who would be some hitters? Oh man. Like Aramis um, Ramirez. I feel like. Yeah. Aramis Ramirez is the one that comes to mind first of all. And I don't even know if the, yeah, that's probably why, because it felt like he just would never go away. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it didn't matter who he was playing for. I don't know if the stats, back that up as him being quite as deadly as he seemed, but that's seared into my brain as the person that I always dreaded seeing come to the plate. I met Ryan Howard for a while was up there. Um, Although that kind of all vanquished when uh, we not only got him to record the last out in one of the greatest games of all time, but we also got him to tear his Achilles and uh, uh, finish that series in a crumpled heap at home plate, which was sort of rewrites the the memories. I think a little bit. I think it did. Yes. Yeah. Well, I am glad that none of the guys on that list are (laughs) still playing, but the Cardinals still have plenty of, plenty of people that they seem to struggle with. Although I'm trying to think this year who that guy would be. I mean, Yelich, right? It's been a while yeah. since we've seen him, so it doesn't. We haven't that made the Brewers in so long, but it's got to be Yelich. Although on the other hand, Yelich has pretty much done that to everyone. It's always more fun when it's a guy who was good, but like absolutely great against you. Although you know who more fun might not be the right expression, but you know who I always felt that way about, and I have not looked at the numbers to actually see if this is a real thing, but Sean Rodriguez. Yeah, who was yeah. with the Pirates for a while uh-huh. is always a guy that I felt like he came in off the bench to like pinch hit and would hit a three run bomb to take the lead or something. Every time it felt like it's Sean Rodriguez. He's not even the first guy off the bench sometimes. Why can they not get him out? That's that's one more obscure name, I guess, that I always felt like did a nice job of terrorizing the Cardinals pitching. That's a good one, and um, I'll say one more, and this was only for half a series, but it counts anyway because it hurt so much, and that's Marco Scudero in the mm. 2012 NLCS. I uh, never want to have to relive that again. Yeah, yeah, those 
memories are yeah well we might never have brutal. to live the nlcs again so hey yeah yeah it's true that's true <laughs> yeah. um <laughs> the uh poison for this year i think would be opposing pitchers at the plate yeah, not so much I, lately but at least the first like two and a half months of the season I feel the like number I, of home runs that opposing pitchers hit <laughs> It was just like, how does this keep happening? I feel like that's been a thing the last couple of years. Although I also wonder if everyone feels that way about their team. But like, remember when like Don Lester got his first hit? Yeah, upper? he was completely yeah. helpless out to play. Yet somehow managed to get a hit off. I think Lackey was pitching for us when that happened. Um, yeah. So that was a while ago. Uh, but yeah, it seems like for a while that's been going on. But that could just be uh, my own bias from watching this team too much. <laughs> just a growing trend yeah, at this point yeah. as opposed to an yeah. isolated incident well now that you're all thinking about great moments in cardinals history we're gonna wrap up this episode but at least we got you to stop thinking about this year's team for a minute right that's what we were we're gonna say that's what we were going for make sure that you give the birds on the black page a follow on twitter you can follow both alex and i at Tara Wellman, at AlexCard79. If you follow us on a your favorite podcast listening service, if you give it a like or a follow or a favorite or whatever it is that happens on your favorite podcast medium, that would be super. And we will be back with you next week to maybe talk about what's actually happening on the field instead of all the things that are not happening in the front office. And if that doesn't work then we'll all just get a bag of donuts and share them together for alex i'm tara we'll talk to you next time